This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by Revitalist, yet another company that I've pursued to bring on the show as a sponsor because I know they truly have solutions to many of the problems that we face. Currently, there is a global pain and mental health pandemic that we are suffering through. For some people, traditional therapies are working, whether it's psychotherapy, whether it's even prescribed medication, but for many, many people, they are what's known as treatment resistant. The traditional roads are just not working for them, leaving them even more frustrated. You may have heard multiple times on this show, the Navy SEAL community, for example, having incredible success with Ibogaine and psilocybin, and in the UK, MDMA-led therapy. The problem is none of those are legal at the moment. The good news is the anesthesiology world discovered that ketamine, a drug that they use legally every day during surgeries, actually has incredible mental health and chronic pain applications as well. Now, on episode 559, I had Catherine Walker, a certified nurse anesthetist, who decided to start Revitalist after seeing the incredible results on chronic pain and mental health challenges. This rapidly expanding company is currently in nine locations, spanning Knoxville, Tennessee, Detroit, Houston, Jacksonville, Florida, and beyond. And each facility offers low-dose ketamine therapy, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, TMS, vitamin infusions, and so much more. Now, to truly hear the full story behind this, go to episode 559 and listen to Catherine Walker's episode or go to revitalistclinic.com to learn more about the therapies they offer, their locations, and to reach out to them yourself. 
Welcome to episode 586 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Pan Yanitsos. Now, Pan is a documentary filmmaker and the man behind Freedom Besieged and his latest film, Florian's Nights, which detailed how firefighters from both Canada and the US used a motorcycle club to build community and overcome mental health challenges. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating this show gets elevates it, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them around the world. So with that being said, I introduce to you Pan Yanitsos. Enjoy. Well, Pan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, James, for having me, man. I, I really appreciate it, and I, your platform is great, and uh, I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, so I was watching your latest film just last night, so I can't wait to discuss that, and obviously it's very pertinent to the, the audience that's listening at the moment. For everyone out there, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Vancouver, Canada right now. So that's where I've been based out of and, and working in, in the film industry over the past decade. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. For sure. Yeah, I, I was born in a, um, a city called Regina and uh, in the province of Saskatchewan in the Canadian Midwest. Um, i Born to a, a Greek immigrant family, my grandparents immigrated from Greece in the late 1950s, um, and my my, fa- my father took over my grandfather's restaurant. And my mother is a uh, a teacher, and she uh, works in the arts. and uh, And then I have one sister who also lives out here in Vancouver uh, as well, and she actually herself just opened a theater. So you know the arts do um do run in the family and uh, i knew i wanted to be a filmmaker from the time i was 14 years old and uh, have never looked back since well speaking of greece obviously that is the uh, theme for freedom freedom besieged and you know as we were discussing before it was not fully available yet so i wasn't able to watch it but i did kind of digest as many trailers and extended trailers and, and clips um you had some amazing people on you had gabo Motte, you had um, jordan peterson and then obviously the people of greece um, it, we got a kind of little, you know, snapshot of, oh, Greece is in trouble, bankruptcy, and then back to our normal lives again. So talk to me about your early days going back and forth, visiting your, your relatives. And then before we get into, you know, your actual main, uh, timeline, talk to me about why you wanted to tell the Greek story through film. Yeah. Well, I think my, my perspective has always been that, um, you know, start telling stories at home first. Um, and I think it's just such a comfortable place to be to, to, you know, kind of hone in on your craft. And so I didn't really have to look much further than, you know, the country that uh, my grandparents came from um, and that I had visited, 
you know, countless times uh, over the years since I was um, just a kid. And, you know, and of course, I've always had a fascination with um, younger generations and how they deal with, you know, past traumas. And I felt like the youth of Greece specific to Freedom Besieged, um, I really wanted to focus on the youth identity within the country. Um, and in order to have that issue taken seriously, I wanted to bring on, you know, some of the most iconic uh, commentators in the world. Um, Freedom Besieged, I was blessed to, you know, speak with Noam Chomsky, Jordan Peterson, Gabor Mate, um, uh, Michael Dukakis, uh, and countless others who uh, contributed to the project. And, uh, and then I was able to then, you know, kind of bridge that gap to uh, the youth of Greece going through um, one of the most, um, you know, kind of terrifying economic crises that, uh, you know, the, the country has seen in its modern era. So that, that really was, um, you know, I wanted to start at home and uh, Greece being home in many ways. And, and, and I felt like we really, we really got somewhere in that conversation. And so that movie will be, you know, made available online uh, in the coming months. So I'm really excited to, to share that because, you know, I filmed it uh, in my early 20s and it was kind of my, my first real feature and, 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 you know, kind of love letter to my country. So that's kind of how I feel about that. Well, starting at the very beginning then, before we go to you going back to visit, what was it that made your grandparents emigrate to Canada? Well, it was it, economic. Um, it was that the, the country has such a turbulent modern history in and out of wars, in and out of civil war. Um, and, you know, my grandparents really came from near poverty and, and Canada presented uh, just this wonderful opportunity to create a new life. Um, so, I mean, my grandfathers, they you know, and my grandmothers, you know, they came over with kind of a, a wing and a prayer here and uh, with very little in their pocket. And, uh, and then I watched them essentially, you know, uh, build a, a middle to upper class life in Canada um, from only having a couple dollars in their pocket when they came here. I think my grandfather worked for 20 cents an hour, his first job um, as a bellboy at a hotel. Um, so it, it's, that's the story of my family is perseverance uh, it's, um, and it's kind of rising from the ashes and, and that has actually really pushed me from a fundamental, you know, standpoint as a filmmaker. Um, and, you know, when I go out in the field and I chase these stories, um, you know, I'm, it's kind of ingrained in me, this, this, you know, hunger and drive to, to, to keep going through, through some of the tougher things that, that documentary filmmaking puts you through. So I owe a lot of that to, the essence of who my grandparents were. Now, what about a Canadian young boy going to Greece? You know, what what was uh, what was Greece like during your childhood? Well, I think at the time it was actually, and it's interesting because when I made Freedom Besieged, a big story of the film is that in the early two thousands um, and before, I mean, I mean, Greece was kind of living this. I would say probably a bit of an economic falsehood, but the time, times were really good. I mean, I went to the Olympics in 2004. That same year, Greece won the you know European Championships in soccer, uh, and it was just a it was a wonderful time to be there. You know, people had money, people had prosperity, national pride was high. 
Um, so that really is my recollection of, of, of being in Greece as a child. And so then fast forward to then making a movie about the economic crisis as an adult now, it, it's interesting because my friends lived through that. I was able to witness that transition through their eyes. And I was able to see some of the disenfranchised men of the Greek youth. So um, through, the, through the perspective of these people that I grew up with. Um, so that it definitely a, a, a fascinating transition, you know, from, from going there as a child. Now, I just finished interviewing a guy, his name's Doug Orchard, another documentary filmmaker. He made um, The Motivation Factor, The Power of Zero, which is about our national debt. And the, basically the social security crisis, and we're not going to have enough money after the baby boomer generation to, to pay anymore. Um, our, our national debt is $30 trillion as it stands. Um, an interesting thing is he's done a lot of films about health as well and how healthcare is basically factoring into our economic crisis. And, you know, if we made people healthier, we would, you know, fix that. If we stop going to war when we didn't absolutely have to, that would also make a huge impact as well. Um, and so I feel like we're kind of where you were documenting pre kind of catastrophe Greece, where we all think everything's okay, but behind the scenes, everything isn't okay. And there is a potential collapse. So what parallels do you see about, you know, that time in Greece and what we're seeing now? And I don't know if it's the same in Canada or if you even get to see America through your lens, but kind of what we're experiencing here in uh, North America now. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't, I never pretend to be an economist. Um, I, it's for me, it's so, so hyper complex. And I, I, I leave that conversation to, to folks who I think are, um, you know, uh, far more qualified to look at the ins and outs of, of these things. I, I always like to examine things from a, from a psychological standpoint and an identity standpoint. That's where I feel like my lens is best suited. And I did the very same in Florian's Nights, which is, you know, the film we're going to discuss shortly here. Um, I, I really like to go and examine things from a grassroots community um, kind of uh, psychological standpoint. And then I let that kind of form the basis of an argument that might inform, um, you know, why certain things are transpiring economically and why there are certain trends out in the community that that lead us down a certain path. So, um, you know, it, even in Freedom Besieged, I, you know, and, and some people I think maybe criticized me for it, that I looked at it through such a psychological and, you know, lens that, you know, they, they wanted me to dive into the economics of it. You know, they kind of wanted me to go through the dollars and cents of it. But I, I, I much rather go and explore things at their origin, which I think is through the identity of the, of the you know, modern citizen and how they see their role in, in, in the world around them. And, and then, you know, I, I let others look at the implications of that, you know, so that's kind of the nature of my work goes at much more of a fundamental standpoint, kind of the origin of some of the crises which I think starts at the, the person's perception of who they are in their community. And, and, and that's kind of some of the things that, you know, um, Jordan Peterson examines and, and people from all sides of the aisle, um, you know, um, Gabor Mate and, and some of these great, great, um, you know, examiners of the human psyche um, who might have differing political opinions. And I, and I love to just pick their brain about, about you know what identity really means and what the implications of identity have as it pertains to health and economy. So my observations now, and I think I want to you know explore exactly what you did discuss and, and observe because I think that's exactly it. We can't affect you know numbers with 
multiple zeros after them, but we can affect what happens in our own community. But what I've seen, for example, 9-12, the day after 9-11, that was almost kind of romanticized as we went through the pandemic. I missed 9-12. I missed, despite it being a horrendous, you know, attack and, and, you know, mass murder, that people came together. World War II, a lot of, you know, back home in England, that's, you know, there was a lot of that, you know, just pure community, pure, you know, neighborly acts happening. And I feel sadly that especially as we emerge out of this has been the opposite. There are great, great people doing amazing things, but there's been almost like through this yuppie industry, you know, yuppie phase onwards, like the eighties, where it's like crush the competition. I got mine. You know, why should I pay for someone else's healthcare? All these kind of things. And I think that loss of community is contributing to the fracturing that we're seeing now or the pigeonholing. Well, I'm this color and I'm this sexual orientation and I, you know, pray this way. So therefore I'm going to stand over here. What were some of the common denominators? What was, what was the nucleus of some of the problems that they had in Greece? Well, I, I think, <laughs> you know, um, and, and again, some of the things you're talking about, I mean, I, I do attribute to, you know, how just effective social media is and, um, and, and just how it, it creates, it almost creates a reality just so much more polarizing than, than um, or sorry, creates kind of the falsehood of reality that's so much more polarizing than, than, than it actually is. But in, in Greece, I think it was much different. I think in Greece, um, you look at some of the, when you when you when you look at the capital controls, when you look at austerity and the product of austerity, um, uh, and and what it what it does to, I'll put it to you this way: if you have a population for so many years who you basically project prosperity upon, you say you know buy a car, get you know you know get a credit card, you know what I mean? You can pay for these things. The country is doing well. Um, we're now in the European Union. We're now a part of the bigger picture. We're entering modern Europe, but you have none of the infrastructure in place to make that sustainable. You're giving people government jobs um, that pay well, but really are ineffective. Um, and, and you're doing all these things, you're creating a false reality. And then at some point the collector calls and now the Greek citizens are now asked to give what they don't have. Um, and that creates such a sense of disenfranchisement and distrust. And again, distrust in the government has gone for basically the entirety of modern Greek history. So it's nothing new. Um, but I, and when Greeks are some of the most generous and philanthropic people in the world, even when you look at, you know, what Greek Americans, Greek Canadians, Greeks around the world, I mean, they are so, they're the leaders of so much philanthropy. Um, but at the time, I think the desperation and disenfranchisement caused a certain sense of cannibalization. And I think um, that led to xenophobia in many ways, that led to scapegoating in many ways, because again, and I, I kind of say this in Freedom Besieged, where you know, they had lost the narrative, the modern Greek narrative, they'd lost it. And so they had kind of now gone and searched in other places and kind of went and tried to find somebody to blame. And I think that really led to um, the rise of the far right in Greece. I mean, you have to remember, we had a neo-Nazi party with, I believe, um, you know, over 3% of the vote. I think, you know, they had a seat in cabinet. I mean, so it, it was a, it was an extremely, you know, divisive time. Um, but again, not born out of, you know, the Greek people's, um, you know, 
uh, true desire, but it was born out of desperation. And, um, and I think also I examined it in Freedom Besieged as well, that um, Greeks were being, I think, um, kind of uh, brainwashed into this idea that when problems came to the forefront, that there was always somebody else to blame for those problems. And I don't think Greeks ever looked at themselves and wondered, how did we get here? Who did we vote for? And how did we create these voting pools? What did we fall for? I don't think there was that self-examination. And, and that's a big part of the movie is about getting back to that understanding of one's place in, in society. And, and so that led to just, just so many issues. That loss of identity, I think, you know, made Greeks out to be a beast that they just simply weren't. And again, I see so many parallels. I really do. So, for example, coming from the UK to America, the American dream is, you know, a little plot of land so you can feed your family and, you know, roof over their head. And and when I get here, it's, oh, no, 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 it's, you know, a, a, a lifted truck and a Winnebago and a, a jet ski and a ski boat. And, you know, and it's the same thing, that capitalism. Again, it's not blaming. It's a, cl- a collective thing, like you said, but we've allowed that you know, that dream, that happiness to be attached to ticketed items. And at the same time, simultaneously, our country has got sicker and sicker and sicker. So we traded, you know, health for wealth, as they say. And then when you add the fact it's an illusion of wealth, because there is a growing, you know, debt happening behind us, I feel like it it mirrors it perfectly. And then you know, you have the the unrest of the, about two years ago. And then I saw on, on the, the trailer of your film that Alexandros uh, yeah, Grigoropoulos. Thank yeah. you so much for helping me out. Yeah, tough, um, tough day. Yeah. Yes, yeah, especially when uh, you can't speak English very well like me. <laughs> um, but, you know, that young boy is killed and then there's unrest. So, you know, talk to me about, you know, how that particular death pivoted the unrest and the violence. For sure. Well, I think if you you have a young population at the time in Greece who were extremely disenfranchised, who had, you know, very little trust in the government, very little trust in institutions in general. And all you needed was somebody to light a match. And I really think that the idea that a 15 year old boy could be, you know, killed and, you know, shot in cold blood in the streets of, of Athens, um, and not just in any neighborhood, but in the neighborhood of Exarchia, which is a, you know, a well-known, you know, um, kind of not, you know, a, a place of, it's a very young neighborhood. Um, it's a, a neighborhood full of, you know, um, young creatives, very politically engaged youth, um, and uh, and even some, some extremism. Um, and so I, I think for it to have, for a young boy to have been killed in that neighborhood at that time was the match that really lit, um, you know, kind of so much of that unrest that had been living in the hearts of young Greeks for many, many years, many, many years. Um, and, and so that to me was really the inciting incident of the entire film from the perspective of young Greeks, you know, and, and some people look at me and say, well, you know, the young kid, you know, he threw rocks at the cops and then the police responded. And it's one incident. It's not representative of, you know, the, the I, I think I'm sometimes sometimes criticized for simplifying the Greek, you know, the issues within Greece, um, you know, and, and making them too simplistic. But I really do believe that moments in time are very telling. And I think that moment in time 
was a was a extremely significant uh, event um, and something that I think young Greeks from all all sides of the you know every political aisle can can recognize as being you know a moment of reckoning. Uh, as it pertains to you know young Greeks' belief in the institutions around them, and that's something that still continues on to this day. Um, unfortunately, it appears that the trend has continued in Greece, and I frankly can't tell you where they're going to be in five years. Obviously, there's been this period of almost we've been frozen in time because of the pandemic, and I'll be very curious to see, um, you know, what what Greeks' relationship will be with their government in 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 another half decade. Well, you mentioned the you know the the one moment to to turn the tide, as it were, or, or um, ignite the fire. It, it reminds me of a, a wildland fire. You know, when we get a lot of rain and it's the springtime, um, you know, you can drop a cigarette and nothing will happen. But if it's the time where we've had drought, one cigarette can cause a hundred thousand acres damage. And I think that's kind of an interesting analogy. Is yeah, if you if you want to minimize the effects of some of these things. Firstly, obviously try and prevent it in the first place. But secondly, you know, it, the environment is what matters, whether it's, I talk about health. I mean, COVID is a cigarette. Now that could be a cigarette in, the, in a lush green grass where it just burns a few people that are vulnerable and you pour all your resources into protecting them. Or if you have a grossly overweight population, now you have wild, wildfire red flag conditions and one cigarette can wipe out an entire, you know, group of people. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting perspective looking at it that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think at the end of the, at the end of the day, my belief is, is that narrative is very powerful. And when you have, um, when you have, I think a vulnerable population in search of comfort and identity and belonging, um, you know, a, a, a an impactful narrative, um, like, you know, young Alexis being shot in the street, um, like COVID, like 9-11, you know, when you have these very kind of easily digestible narratives that have extraordinary, extraordinary um, abilities to, to divide and unite people, um, you know, I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm just always been such a big believer. And I, I really, this is why I believe that storytelling um, is, you know, I believe it to be probably the most valuable commodity on earth right now. The ability to, to communicate uh, a narrative is, um, I don't think has ever been more valuable than it is today. And it's extremely dangerous. Uh, it's extremely dangerous. I know the responsibility that I have as a documentarian um, is as heightened now as it's ever been in history. And uh, that's exciting. It's frightening. But, you know, I hope that I just keep moving forward with integrity and can, um, you know, maybe move the needle in the right direction. Yeah, well, I've spoken about this a lot. I think there's, it's an exciting time because you have podcasts, you know, where, again, there's a remove filter. And just like you said, you know, this remove filter can do good in the world, which I hope this podcast does. And it can do bad in the world. You can spread hate, too. And I think the same with documentaries. Obviously, there are some awful ones out there, you know. Whatever it is, talking about the opposing political party, you can tell they paid for it to, you know, demonize whoever. But then there are so many great, great documentaries, and I, I see those are the ones that are really rising up. People don't want to see the the detritus anymore; they want to hear a great story told and and shot beautifully and narrated well with good music in the background. So yeah, I think that's a medium that people are craving right now. Oh, for sure, and I think audiences are getting, you know. Um, I like to believe that audiences are getting, you know, much 
much smarter in how they can kind of weed through, um, you know, I, I think there are, to, to this very day, I think there are there are a lot of propaganda films out there. I think, um, uh, and you just have to kind of follow the money with some of these things. Um, but uh, but at the same time, you do have an incredible, you know, um, kind of surge of you know objective documentarians who are given creative freedom, given resources to kind of fulfill that creative freedom, and 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 so again, that's why I say it's such an exciting time. It's also a frightening time because I believe that you know um, there is still quite a large portion of the population who. Um, again, storytelling is very powerful. It's very convincing. Um, and there are some people I think in my field who don't take that very seriously when they, when they go, when they step on set and, uh, and, and that can inform someone's worldview, you know, that can inform someone's worldview for the next 30 years of their life. And that's the responsibility we have. And I take that very seriously. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it's, uh, there's only so much, you know, I can only really control myself and, and my crews and what we, what we set out to do on a daily basis. And my hope is that the audience recognizes, um, you know, those of us that, that go out here and act with integrity versus those of us that don't. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the film I saw so far was absolutely beautiful. So, you know, it was definitely told, you know, very, very fairly as well as we'll get into There's There's opposing sides of the conversation. So I'm going to attempt another Greek name now. So stand by. Um, John Karkalatos, have I got that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What really was powerful to me, and again, we're talking sound bites, I didn't get to see the whole film, but it's something I talk about a lot. The way that we break the cycle of division, of hate, of crime and violence and depression and anxiety and suicide and all these things that we, you know, met, uh, the actual physical ill health is through mentorship. And it seems like he got that and I, I saw in one little sound by he talked about you know it's time after this this collapse of the country for us to roll up our sleeves and get to work so talk to me about him talk to me about what he was trying to do in that one community that he stood in for that next generation of children yeah i think you know the so you know john carcalatos is um you know a local farmer in a small village in the peloponnese region of greece called kiveri um, and he, I think he looked around him and he saw a lot of young people who just aren't given. And, you know, when we go back to some of your passions, when it comes to, you know, extracurricular activity, athletics, what that can do for people, you know, how that's such a unifying, not just from a health perspective, but from an identity perspective, how, how it can really unify, uh, and, and unite a, a community. Um, John looked around in Greece and that wasn't there. Right, young people, the extracurricular activities that I would have grown up with in Canada, the opportunities I had, the kids that were living in this village didn't have those opportunities. Where were they going? You know, maybe they were out, you know, with their buddies that going to the club, going to this or that. They weren't, but there wasn't that kind of healthy place of competition and athletics that could really actually um, uh, inform a, a young person's path, you know, for the next decade of their life. And so John formed this, this little basketball camp and it started with 10 kids and it grew to 300 kids. Um, and we've seen out of the camp an extraordinary, uh, you know, kind of trend of success for the, for the, for the kids who graduate at whatever, 14, 15 years old, and they go out and they, they go to school, they go to high school in a different city, or they head off to university. Um, you know, John has cultivated a community there through sport 
um, that I found very fascinating during a time in Greece with so much disenfranchisement and so much divisiveness. Um, you know, and I think the irony of that is that he is from, he does this in the village that my maternal grandfather is from. So I actually participated in John's camp as a kid. So I actually reaped the benefits of his mentorship and then came back 10 years later and made a movie with him at the center of it, um, which, so I'm a part of that story and I, and I find it really fascinating. And I think, I think some Greeks um, look at that and they think, well, here's one guy with one camp and how does that possibly have any implication on this massively complex economic, you know, um, kind of uh, crisis that's happening in our country that happens at multiple levels that has, you know, centuries of history behind it. Um, you know, and, and it, that, that is the great argument, right? Is systemic change versus local change, which informs the other more. Um, in, in, in my experience being boots on the ground with people and having visceral firsthand testimony, you know what I'm saying? I'm not conducting things from a, uh, an, kind of overarching broad statistical analysis, but I'm looking at one community and I'm speaking with everybody in that community and receiving firsthand testimony. And what I found was that um, uh, John had a, I think a visceral impact on the, the worlds that surrounded these kids. So then what do these kids go out to do? Who do they vote for? Do they become involved in politics? Where it, it's, this, it's this snowball effect and this is why I think teachers are so valuable. And there's the great crime of how we teach, te how we treat teachers in North America. Um, and that's a whole nother discussion. But I mean, how you, how you set a child up for success when they're nine years old is extremely, extremely significant and impactful. And so when Greeks tell me, how does this one basketball coach with his camp really have an impact? I go, well, he's, 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 he sure as heck is impacting about 300 voters in about 10 years and how they feel about themselves and how they inspire their neighbors, how they talk to other students in school and how they become leaders in their respective businesses. I mean, it's, it's an, to me, I find that quite impactful. So I think that there are instances where grassroots impact um, can have systemic implications. Um, and, uh, and, and of course the, it works the other way around, of course, to, to an incredible degree. You need, you need systems to be in place to, you know, allow for grassroots um, individuals to, to create good things. But um, in this case, I just found John and from, it was an inside out, you know, method, you know, kind of method that I saw I, and I witnessed its effectiveness. So to me, I documented one truth. It's not the whole story, but, but to me, John, um, definitely move the needle well it reminds me of that um quote if you want to change the world start at home you know and i think right. that's it is yes john that particular individual was affecting 300 which you know that ratio is incredible but also what's the power of him inspiring other johns around greece for example to do a similar thing and i think you know through the storytelling through documentaries through podcasts through you know books through all the the positive medium you can then force change on the system. I talk about this all the time with, um, with the fire service. Like they, as you know, they work our men and women into the ground. And it's only when myself and all the other voices get people educated and angry enough to push back and demand a change 
that, for example, we're going to stop, you know, working like Detroit, perfect example, working our men and women to the point where they just die before they ever right. even get to retirement, you know? So we can't sit and wait for the system, the, you know, the government, whoever to change it for us. And, you know, and there's a lot of ownership on us, but at the same time, almost like that kind of vote with your dollar mentality, go to the grocery store now. Look how much more healthy food is available than 20 years ago. That wasn't because we all stood there with placards. It's because we just slowly were inspired by, you know, health leaders. And we started going, you know what? I think I'm going to buy this item instead of the crap item. And what's happening? Things are starting to change. So I think if enough people identify themselves as John in their communities, they will then in turn force systemic change as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's a good segue to, to Florian's nights, um, which is, Again, you know, when we look at the um, such a massive kind of systemic issue, like, you know, post-traumatic stress and first responders, um, even just mental health in general and the stigmas attached to the mental health conversation in North America. What I, I found, what I gravitated to with this movie uh, with Florian's Nights was that there was a motorcycle club, a small community, a grassroots kind of initiative um, that were starting a conversation that was going to move the needle forward in the fire service. And there's, to me, it's, it's a complete fact that there has been for centuries, um, for a century at least, I mean, kind of a bit of a moratorium on mental health within fire services in North America. I think in certain uh, departments more so than others. Um, but, uh, you look no further than when you had, uh, you know, uh, veterans of, you know, world wars coming home, right. Becoming firefighters, kind of taking that military, you know, kind of mentality at the time and bring it into the fire hall. And then those young officers are being mentored by these folks. I mean, uh, it just from, from, from my perspective, you know, nobody was, was, was coming out of the gate in the sixties and in the fifties and saying, you know, well, if, if that if that call bothered you, then, you know, let's sit down and talk about it or whatever. I mean, it, that was just not a part of the conversation. Now we're having to reverse all of that. And and as part of that reversal existed, this motor club, you know, motorcycle club founded in Western Canada with, you know, six, seven guys at the time. You know what I'm saying? But and then that has translated into an international club that is translated into this film now, which is now educating firefighters across the continent. So, you know, there's that snowball effect again that I, I really do believe in, you know, that in, you know, kind of um, grassroots to systemic, you know, kind of impact that I've, I've now seen with, with Florian's nights as well. Um, and, and something to mention about the film before we get deeper is that it's starting to be taken on by departments as mandatory training. So there, there it's now completely infiltrated the system and is inspiring firefighters, you know, four or five degrees away, um, you know, from, from the initial group itself. So that's, that's, a, that's the exciting thing about Florian's Nights right now. Well, before we get into how you chose that topic and then, you know, the, the journey into that, when I looked at, you know, some of your other work, it seemed like there was an addiction element prior and interested in addiction obviously you had Gabor, Gabor Morte on I'm butcher his name now Gabor Morte on um, your previous film as well so prior to really diving into the fire service what had been your exposure on mental health and addiction up to that point you know I um, 
Well, the, the, the one thing that another kind of genre that I'm, I'm heavily involved with is in, is in true crime. And um, in, in doing a lot of projects that, you know, uh, exist in the true crime genre and, and working with folks who, who have been incarcerated, who, you know, or who have done things in their life that have gotten them incarcerated, um, you know, you, you run into a lot of childhood trauma and you run into a lot of addiction. Um, you run into a lot of broken homes. You, you know, I mean, it's, um, it's no secret that a lot of, you know, the crimes committed across this continent are born out of, you know, childhood trauma. And so, um, you know, again, working with a lot of criminals, I guess you could say, um, has been a, a significant introduction um, to the mental health epidemic that I think exists in this country. Uh, and, and so that I, I, I didn't mean to, to do this. I don't think I set out in my career to kind of, you know, live in the, in the genre of mental health and trauma and crime and, and, you know, and all these things, it just kind of, um, I felt like my lens could, you know, help, you know, I felt like there was a lot of this was, was kind of cast in the shadows. And I felt like I could shine a light on the complexity that, that exists within, within human beings, um, it's not just about law and order. Um, it's not just about, um, you know, suicide rates. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, there, there's such a more, there's such a deep and complex conversation to be had about, about these things. And so um, that's what eventually my work, whatever is the Greek economic crisis into true crime. And now I, I arrived at, you know, kind of first responder mental health. But it was all informed by kind of the trends of my career in the past, um, and uh, and Florian's nights kind of became the a great culmination of of everything I had done previously. Now, when you were doing the true crime um, stuff and kind of realizing that there was childhood trauma, it's something I talk about a lot. I mean, I'm I'm vehemently opposed to the prohibition of addiction, for example, you know, putting the power in the underworld and creating the absolute, you know war on the streets that we see both domestically and across the border as well. Um, did you contrast that? Did you see any other um, kind of systems around the world that were doing it better? I talk about Norway's prisons. I talk about Portugal and Switzerland's, um, you know, drug policies, for example. Were there any, did, did you look outside the borders and find successful programs that were a different way of doing it than we do? For sure. I think Northern Europe, for sure, you know, always kind of has a reputation of, of um, you know, kind of, I think, progressiveness on, on that front. I think I'm just, I'm so, I get just so, you know, my job as a documentarian, I find, is asking the right questions. And it's not always about providing the answer. Um, I think that I get... I get very obsessed in kind of the minutia and the, and the detail of the subjects at hand, you know, that, that I'm, I'm basically there to, you know, offer in a completely objective and detailed, you know, transcription of that individual's experience and how maybe that individual's experience is a trend among others around them and in a similar situation. And then I ask the tough questions about that. And then, you know, there is this, and then I kind of, um, I don't necessarily go beyond that bubble, you know what I mean? And start bringing in, you know, other, other examples of, because I understand that we're living in a very different, you know, I, 
I, I think the United States and Canada kind of exist with with the, with the history that exists here, the um, you know kind of some of the systemic implications. It's just a completely different world. We we have I think um, different hurdles than than maybe say some countries in Northern Europe and how they've been successful. There's certain things that we can obviously take and inform ourselves, but um, I, I such a firm believer. I, I really put myself in a box and I try to be as accurate and decisive as possible within that box, ask the right questions. And then hopefully that inspires people to go in search globally for, for the answers. Um, but I, I'm very preoccupied with just trying to get the truth about one person, right? You know, it's such a, I find that people go macro way too quickly, right? And it kind of seems so simple. And then, but when you really dive into an individual's experience and how they're informed by their history and everything, it gets very complex. And so, um, you know, that's how I've kind of gone about my process, um, you know, over, over, over the years. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the results are fantastic. So, um, and I think that's it. You know, if you're going to storytell, you need to storytell. You can't storytell about a thousand things at once, you know, and that's, a, that's through this. Like I had the guy that spearheaded decriminalization in Portugal. I had prison governor from Bastoy in Norway, you know, so I can story tell through that person of what they've right. seen with their, you know, their population. Um, so you are not a motorbike rider and you are not a first responder. So how did you find your way um, into mental health in the fire service? You know, really just based on geography, I lived um, only probably 10 minutes from where the Florian's Knights Motorcycle Club had their, their clubhouse and were founded. And a local production company approached me and uh, brought up the story and said, uh, you, you have to, this is happening now. You know, they're opening up a second chapter in New York City. It's happening now. We'd have to get filming in a couple weeks. Can you do it? I said, uh, well, oh my God, I mean, we've had one meeting. I go, I don't know how I can pull together a crew in two weeks, get everybody aligned, build a whole project and everything. And then I left the meeting and uh, I get into traffic and I've told this story before, but I get into traffic and a member of the Florian's Knights was in front of me in traffic for about 40 minutes. So I'm staring at the back of their patch for about 40 minutes as I've left this meeting. And it was actually Rod McDonald, who's a prominent member of the film. And uh, so just staring at the patch and this kind of little moment of serendipity, I thought, oh, jeepers, man, I, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to New York and we'll start filming and I, I'll see what happens from there. And, and next thing you know, I, I filmed with the club for, um, you know, three and a half years uh, until completing the project. So I, I honestly had not thought about the fire service really you know, maybe since 9-11, to be honest, you know, I hadn't really put any thought into first responder mental health. Obviously, there's an awareness there. There's a now this growing conversation. But but I hadn't really put detailed thought into any of this. And most certainly, I had not a clue about motorcycle culture. Now, nobody in my family really rides. I mean, I didn't even really understand what an MC or an RC or any of these clubs were. Um, and uh, And so I kind of approached the movie from from ground, uh, you know, from, from ground zero, where I was just, uh, just an amoeba there to soak in this entire community that I hadn't thought about in, in many years. So the film opens with, you know, firefighters in different parts of North America responding to calls. And I'm sure a lot of people that have a caricature version of what the fire service does are probably going to be surprised, surprised at 
what they were running on. And as a firefighter, that's exactly what I was running on in all but my last fire department that was very, you know, affluent and was a theme park area. So, you know, not as much of that. So were you as a, as you said, a, you know, a civilian that wasn't really immersed in the fire service, as you started following these people, were you surprised at the kind of calls they were actually running and the volume of calls that they were running? Oh, absolutely. I, I had no clue. Um, I really, um, I, when you, when you look at the fire service and, and what, what has been asked of them from a medical response standpoint. Um, I mean, here in Vancouver and in Toronto and in many other places throughout uh, uh, the United States, I'm sure, you know, we have an opioid crisis. We have an opioid crisis that's very significant. Um, and I didn't, I never would have attributed uh, that, the response to that, to the fire service. I think I would have attributed that to, to, to paramedics um, uh, and, and then, but, but for some reason, you just, I, like you said, I also had this caricature of the fire service, which was, you know, again, fighting fires. You know what I mean? Rescuing, you know, pulling somebody out of a, you know, out of a building, you know, responding to a, you know, a false alarm at an apartment complex. You know what I mean? I mean, that's where you saw these, that's where you saw these, uh, these men and women. Um, and in doing the ride-alongs, which we had the pleasure of, uh, well, I can't really say pleasure, but we had the the, the, the opportunity to ride along with fire departments from across North America, some of the most iconic departments too, when you look at the Detroit Fire Service. And here in Canada, there's no bigger than Vancouver and Toronto. Um, so to have that intimate, unfiltered, you know, ride along with our cameras, with intent, understanding what we were there to do. And to, to have that front row seat, I think just completely blew open my perception. And in real time, my entire idea of what firefighting was, was completely changed forever. And I think we've communicated that now to our audiences. There, I mean, I've received that note a hundred times over where people say to me, I had no idea that they dealt with A or B or C or D. I had no idea firefighters responded to that. Um, and, and that's been a great point of education, I think, you know, in the film. No, it was very powerful. And it's something that I talk about quite a bit, which is, I, I ask people, I'm like, tell me, name a famous firefighter, you know, like name, name, name the Jocko Willink of the fire service or the Jocko Willink of law enforcement. Like you can't, you know, right. I, I don't, I can't think of anyone. And so it's so sad because as you saw, you know, the, some of the films that you ended up leaving in, in, excuse me, some of the scenes you left in the film at the beginning, that's what we see all the time. Like we see behind the curtain. We see the, the health of the, you know, of the country. We see the violence. We see the gangs. We see, you know, what works and what is actually just smoke mirrors and politicking. And so mm -hmm. it's a shame that, that there isn't that voice out there telling the people, you know, being able to say, hey, this is what's really going on in our streets. So it is films like you and you know, yours and, and Burn and some of these other, you know, fire service and law enforcement documentaries that really do allow people to get a glimpse into what we actually do. And therefore, you know, it's not even like, oh, poor firefighters. In that scene is a 25-year-old, you know, cracked out male or female they can't even stand up. They're hunched down, like touching their toes, you know, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. These are our men and women in our community. These were kids that, you know, we went to kindergarten with once that we were throwing a ball to each other. And now one lives under a bridge and one's dead in a dumpster because she was murdered by a pimp. You know what I mean? This, this is the, this is the real, uh, 
mirror that people need to look into of the dark side of the culture that we've created. And like you're talking about with, with Greece and community, you can't have this facade of wealth and you also can't have this facade of health. Like we are not a healthy nation and this is the reality. Our obese people are dropping dead left, right and center and it's people like us that pick them off the ground and take them to the morgue, you know, or the hospital or wherever. So I think it's so important to see what our profession does, but it's also so important to document what we see through our eyeballs of that side of the community. For sure. And I think it, um, it's, uh, yeah, it definitely is startling. Um, you know, again, just in Vancouver's downtown east side, when you go to, you know, when you go to two dozen and um, even 20, over 20, you know, overdoses, you know, in a shift or on, you know, welfare Wednesday, as they call it, you know, and they have this entire influx of overdoses. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's disheartening. It's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a term that's used and it's, it's a horrible term, but it's a term that's used on Vancouver's downtown East side, which is, you know, it's a sad circus. Right. And, and I think, um, you know, how can we be okay with that? You know what I'm saying? And it's not getting better. Uh, and, and so I think it, it, you know, my crew, you, you, you walk away from this experience and even me as a, as a civilian became a little bit desensitized to became a little jaded, you know, and, you know, even I think my wife maybe had pointed it out or somebody had pointed it out to me that, you know, um, I was, uh, my, my personality had changed in a couple weeks after we had been through some of these things. And, you know, you look at your community a little bit differently. You, um, you, you know, you, there's a helplessness there. And, um, and so that, in that moment, I then thought to myself, well, what does 30 years of a career do to you? You know what I'm saying? Like, what does 30 years, that call volume, and that's what kind of led me to really wanting to explore cumulative trauma. And, and you know, because again, I had a percent, you're going to see one, you're going to see a, a, um, a dead child or a dead baby or something like that. And that's going to haunt you for the rest of your career. And that's going to be the, the trigger point for PTSD that then leads to the symptoms and all, all these things. But then I never really thought to myself, well, could it, what about the accumulation of, you know, several kind of small hits to the brain here? over 30 years, what can that do to a person? And what are the symptoms of cumulative trauma? And so that, um, that was, I think, another big kind of, not a whistleblow moment in the movie, but I, I just don't think people understood 25, 30 calls in a shift, 12 of them horrible. You know what I'm saying? 30 years on the job, you know? And, uh, and Rod McDonald's map scene, which I don't necessarily want to get into detail because it's my favorite scene of the movie. I want people to just get, you know, rocked by that scene. But, but you know, Rod McDonald having a map of Vancouver in front of him and, and, and showing you what his, what his mind goes through on a daily basis when he drives through his community. That right there, I thought, was a really big moment in this conversation. So that's, that's kind of what, what has, uh, you know, again, just shocked me about the whole process. That was my favorite scene too. And, you know, it was so well done, you know, and it wasn't supposed to be some cinematic, you know, amazing moment. It was a very raw moment. But I think anyone anyone that, that stays in their, their same area for a long time, which I we had a battalion in, in two um, departments ago that I was in, 
Um, and then when I go back to California, the previous one, you know, when I drive through immediately, it's not just like he talks about. It's not, oh, this is the corner of, you know, Catella and whatever. This is where, you know, that, that family was killed. Or this is when, you know, that drunk driver rolled over and she walked away and her three kids, her three friends were dead. You know, I mean, just everything is, it's not a landmark. It's, it's a, it's a memory. Um, and it was so well kind of highlighted. But I think the other thing that you did well was, I think inadvertently, like, Everyone talking looks so fucking tired. And that's exactly what it should have done because we are so fucking tired all the time. And so the sleep deprivation element, you know, is, I mean, it's, I talk about this so much. You, you go to a public, uh, a grocery store now and the person that's checking you out, bagging your groceries, they're probably working 40 hours a week. The person who is going to get up at three in the morning, jump on a rig, maybe, you know, jump on a roof first and cut a hole and then do a search and, you know, find a child and then come out. And then depending on the size of the part, maybe you have to doff their gear and then work a pediatric cardiac arrest algorithm on them is 56 hours a week minimum. If they're not told they can't go home the next day, you know what I mean? So that sleep deprivation, how that ties into mental and physical ill health is huge. And one of the Gentleman, I think it was uh, the captain from Toronto, if I got this right. Listening to him breathe, I was cringing because I knew inside he was broken. Right, right. Yeah, I think, and, and you know what? Only, only you, I think, could, um, could see that, could, could click into that part of the movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's why there's, what's so fascinating about the film is that um, I've had, it's been, you know, sometimes when you make a film about a certain subculture of people, um, that movie doesn't impact the actual people as, I mean, this is their life. They know, you know what I mean? They know. And so you don't get that. You're in the theater with them. You don't get, but then the general public are, you know, kind of jaw dropped and, and that's, you're really hitting, hitting it hard for them. What I found with Florian's nights, because the conversation had never really been had before to this degree that some of our most impacted, you know, moviegoers were firefighters, were paramedics, were police officers, were people that, although they had lived the life, to see it being communicated like that, um, to see fellow brothers and sisters going through the same thing and building that bridge, that that's where I saw tears in the audience, right? Because they had sat there, and I got this many times where, where people would come up to me and say, I've been trying to say what this movie says for 30 years, right? I mean, but it was just such a, you, you just, it has just become um, clamped down within their soul for decades. And then you go and sit in a theater and you watch a film that just puts it out there right on the silver screen, right there. Like there's Captain Jack Cooper, you know, talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, cumulative trauma. There's Mike Nevin from the Detroit Fire Service talking about, you know, uh, suicide, talking about, um, you know, substance abuse. You know what I'm saying? And and just openly like that, which just never really went beyond the, the the kitchen room table. I think in a lot of in a lot of cases within the fire service. So that was so cathartic. And um, and so just hearing you, you know, comment on Jack's breathing. You know what I'm saying? And knowing right away. You know what I'm saying? You could feel it. That's what I think makes up all these great layers. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's incredible to hear things like that. It really is. 
Yeah, well, I mean, again, as not only a firefighter, but now someone who you know has this platform to try and move the needle in the mental and health world of not only responders but obviously everyone. Um, you know, I've I've become this student, and five years deep now with all these great conversations with these amazing people like yourself. You know, you start to you gain a great understanding. So then it's again, how do you turn that round and say, all right, you know, this is what I've learned. You know, I saw this in myself in my career. You know, these are some of the things that are happening. So now, you know, I guarantee you, if you asked him, he would have a CPAP in his, you know, in his, uh, in his room. And if you took his blood work, his, his hormones would be an absolute, you know, horrendous, you know. And, and so the impact of these men and women on these men and women that step up every day when everyone else is tucked, you know, safely in their beds. And then you get Detroit, who, you know, you know, financially have, have had cuts and they're running over and over and over again, these these vacant arson jobs. But I mean, how do you know if that one one house doesn't have someone that's, that's you know, sleeping in there? So, you know, you just you just see the the overwork, the exhaustion. And what happens is, you know, when the time is right, and, and he, it's funny because he Someone said exactly what I've done a freaking cartoon on before. The fucking politicians will show up and they'll take a picture with you. But the moment it times it's time for actual, you know, to to bolster a department, keeping the fire stations open, you know, giving them the funding they need for the right staffing, they're nowhere to be found, you know. So yeah, there was so many great, great moments, but from different perspectives. FDNY, you know, as you said, Toronto, Vancouver, um, Detroit. Um, that it, you really did a great job of showing, oh, this isn't just this one city that's having this problem. This is a, a national, and I know being, being a host of this show, an international problem with a lot of our first responders. For sure. And I think it, it created the, um, that I think generated a lot of appeal for, you know, for the film where I knew that, well, I really knew two things. I knew that most every major city in North America, you know, has a, first responder community and has a motorcycle community. Um, and so we've now made a movie about both of these subcultures. And I think, so can we, that this is a really, we have an audience, you know, we have an audience and, um, and it's been really special to see us become, I think the spokespeople for the audience in a way with this film. And it's a very unique crowd, right? In terms of, you know, firefighters who ride motorcycles, first responders who ride motorcycles, that's a subculture, a very passionate one. Um, and, uh, but there's not, you know, movies like this don't come around every day, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like, we felt like we had lightning in a bottle and, um, and it, it's been really special to see how it has, you know, really educated and impacted a lot of people's lives, um, including people who have done this profession for, you know, for, for 30 years. Well, I think it was about two years ago, I had Eric Bjornsson on the show. And uh, I remember him talking about riding bikes and being part of this club and uh, how cathartic it was for him. And then he touched on, and then there was this issue where, you know, we were attribute, we were kind of attached to um, gangs, you know, we were accused of being gang members and, and it all fell apart. And, you know, he's like, and so I don't have that anymore. So, you know, we discussed that a little bit, circle around two years, the universe is an amazing place. Here we are having this conversation and you documented that very thing. So let's start first about the genesis of um, Florian's Nights. And then we can, you know, obviously when we get there, naturally talk about, you know, the, the challenges, what, what kind of sadly took away that coping mechanism for the Canadian chapter. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, the club, and, and again, me not being a member, I speak only from the perspective of, of a civilian, really, and a, and a you know, and a, and a member of the, of the media. But I think, um, I think that it really was filling a void for these specific, specific men. Um, I, I think that, especially when you retire, and you retire, and, uh, you know, you can't go to the fire hall, you're not around that I think Rod McDonald put it, put it really well to me one day where he goes, you know, you just, you, you come out one day and um, you know, you, you were a battalion chief and, and you sit at home and nobody's, you know, nobody's bringing you your coffee. You know what I mean? You're just, and, and I think why he said that is that you really do feel a sense of loneliness. You know what I'm saying? When you're on, when you're on the uh, outside of the service and there are departments that do a great job with retired members and there are, you know, groups and committees and all sorts of things. But I think in this particular case, um, I was, there were a lot of guys who were searching for that again, we're searching for somewhere to be. And, uh, and, and so the bike was that unifying factor. Um, and they formed a club around that and that need and that desire to still replicate that brotherhood that they had in the fire service, but now outside of the hall. Um, and, and then obviously there's a whole nother thing as it pertains to the health benefits of riding, but just the peer support, right? Let's just look at the peer support of it. I think that was the genesis of the club. Um, I think peer support is extraordinarily effective um, and important within the fire service. And so that's what they had created, this, 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 this peer support group. Um, and, but when you do that um, within the very complicated world of biker culture here in Canada, um, you know, I having filmed with the group for several years, uh, you come across the stigmas, and uh, and you come across some of the complications that that that, that come with with having a club, and uh, and and so we of course were sh were shocked like everybody when things you know when things started to kind of get crazy there um, with with the club and with you know the perception from the public as to the club being law abiding or not law abiding or outlaw gang or not you know I was just there documenting this in real time. I mean, I had no idea that it could go to this level. Um, and, uh, and that's what I think makes the film, you know, quite unique in that it really is a visual, visceral exploration of um, not just mental health stigma, but also I think biker stigma that, that exists out there today. So it, again, you know, really resonated with me for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I talk about transition a lot and that very thing. So, um, you know, Rob was talking about, you know, you have someone who's been in 10, 20, 30 years and one day they literally walk out the fire station and the bay door closes behind them and their ID doesn't work anymore. You know, in a fast forward two, three years, they don't recognize some of the faces in the fire station if they do swing by. And there's a lot of people that really do struggle with that transition you know i think you've lost your sense of purpose you're not riding an emergency vehicle anymore you've lost your tribe your crew you were with and the identity piece like if you saw yourself as a firefighter as a cop as a soldier you know and you haven't identified as james who happens to be a firefighter but you know a firefighter as, as a whole then yeah the next thing you're at home you know you're with your family maybe you're divorced who knows um and that's all gone. And I, and that community, I think is so important, whether it's coming back to the firehouse and mentoring, you know, younger firefighters, whether it's being part of something bigger than yourself again, you know, like, you know, riding with other people. But then on the 
coping mechanism or healing elements, community, you know, sunshine, nature, um, you know, all these things are what was present in, in the motorcycle gang, uh, I'm using the word gang, the motorcycle club. See, that's the problem. We're all pre-programmed to say that. Um, so talk to me first about what you were seeing slash hearing with these individuals that you followed when they found riding together. Well, I think the, uh, no doubt, I think you hit it right on the head when it comes to, um, you know, finding that community and sense of belonging again. And and there's no doubt about it. I mean, some of these firefighters in the club, um, you know, also come from a much more old school era of firefighting where, where, I mean, I mean, this sense of, you know, um, one's identity separate from one's um, occupation and all these things that we're kind of going through now where you're, you know, you're not your job and your job isn't you and all this stuff. I mean, didn't really exist. I mean, I mean, these career firefighters who also are, whose fathers were firefighters, whose brothers were firefighters. So it's now it's in the family. It's a family business. It's generational. There's honor attributed to that. There's walking in the footsteps of giants attributed to that. And that all just becomes this all-encompassing identity where you are your job. And so when I've seen these men and women retire and, and you go through an identity crisis, right? And you go through an identity crisis. And I found that the Florian's Knights and what they were doing was, was, was saving, saving people from that. They were saving individuals from going through that because that identity crisis paired with the symptoms of post-traumatic stress injuries. And if it, and, and, and I mean, it, it's just a recipe for disaster. And, and I mean, we, I was witnessing it. I was seeing guys slip away after retirement. Um, and I feel like, and I'm not going to name any names or anything like that, but I feel like the club has saved the lives of certain individuals who are going down that path. And so then when you see that, and you're there for the barbecues at the clubhouse or, you know, when the guys are together and there's this community and it just looks like the fire hall kitchen table and it's just great. And they're from different generations, different fire halls. Um, they, they're educating one another They're It's a wonderful place to just blow off steam and to, you know, feel comfortable. Um, it's a place of no judgment. Um, and then you add, and then you add the wind therapy element of it on top of all that. You add the, the scientifically proven, you know, positive, you know, um, neurobiological effects of wind therapy. Uh, it, it just was such a beautiful thing to witness. Um, so when the good times were good, um, again, I wasn't there with the guys other than when I was filming. And, but from my perspective, when the good times were good, I, th I think they were really good. Well, speaking of science, just a tangent for a second, you there was a, a neuroscientist that was actually studying this very thing. And they, they literally had, you know, the scans going while they were riding their bikes. So talk to me about that. Well, I think Dr. Don Vaughn and his team and at UCLA um, and Michael Migura, who is uh, his technician. I mean, it was incredible at the, I mean, how, this is how the universe is so funny at, at the very, at the same time that I'm, by chance making this movie about firefighters who ride motorcycles. There then is a neuroscientist in Silicon Valley who is amidst a study on that exact same subject. And, and when, and my film, if you look at the movie and you think, 
what is the gap? What, what could you be missing? I mean, if you, you, we have the testimony, we have firefighters who ride and they're telling us why they ride and what it means, but you still get, you still get the contrarians, right? Maybe they just ride because they like being a club. Maybe they want to be badass. Maybe they just like going fast on their bike. Maybe they're doing it to pick up women. You know what I mean? I heard everything, right? I mean, I heard everything under the sun. And so then, you know, you, you start, you, you then, you need the science. You know, you, I needed Dr. Vaughn to validate the testimony. And, um, and, uh, and we were very, we were in agreement. I mean, Dr. Vaughn told me, he goes, look, um, I, in my job, I'm not hoping to find anything. Right, I can't be in that position. I'm here to do my job, and and the, and the results are the results. So if I can't validate what you're what you're hoping for, then that's just going to be the truth. And I think I really admired that about him, about how he was approaching it with this very disciplined objectivity because he has to, you know, doing what he does. People's lives depend on it. Um, and uh, and but but it was uh, just to be a part of that, to know that people were looking for answers at the same time that we were, but through the lens of neuroscience was a, a beautiful addition to the film. So when people watch it, I think that's going to be such a satisfying journey for them to see what Dr. Vaughn came up with. Um, obviously don't want to spoil anything here, but just to see that, that somebody else was, was trying um, was a massive, I can't tell you, it was such a, when the firefighters, when the Florian's Knights members discovered that he was doing this, the elation, what, not about the results, whether it's true, because they were already convinced just to know that somebody else gave a shit, you know, was like, was it, it was extraordinary for these guys. Um, and uh, so we owe a lot to Dr. Vaughn and, and, and it was just such a, a wonderful uh, partnership uh, over the course of, of the production. Now, obviously, it didn't just stay in Canada. They ended up, you know, growing by osmosis. So talk to me about some of the cross-pollination across the border. Yeah, with the club, I mean, opening their second chapter um, in, in New York City. I mean, it, it was what a beautiful story. I mean, these firefighters who were inspired by the heroics of 9-11, um, who idolized the fire department of New York now opened their second chapter with firefighters from New York. Um, that to me was that connection, you know, from, from, you know, uh, Vancouver to, to New York city was, uh, that was the momentum. The club had so much momentum, you know, it really did. And, uh, and then being there and watching firefighters from completely different walks of life, completely different countries have so much in common, uh, just click immediately. Like they'd been working together for 25 years. That's what really informed me into, you know, this, I don't think this is an isolated event. I think I'm staring at um, at least a, a, a continental trend. Um, and, uh, and that's what caused me to go to places like Detroit, you know, and to look and to think who else is out there, you know? Um, but just the growth of the club really inspired me to do that. So you have all these, you know, different groups around North America that are finding benefit from riding together. There is an unfortunate picture taken and then there's a ripple effect. Now, when Eric was telling me about it, when, you know, again, when I watched the film, it kind of reminded me of um, the CrossFit founder, Greg Glassman, made, uh, you know, what would be a, an inappropriate tweet um, amidst the kind of George Floyd time um, and the 
many people wanted to burn the entire CrossFit organization down. Now, when you take a step back and look at where CrossFit is and the diversity of the communities that it serves and bringing those communities together, it was one, you know, poorly timed, you know, ill-written tweet that was definitely, you know, taken offense by some people. But then the organization wanted to burn it to the ground. I completely disagree with that. I think CrossFit's, you know, good is is amazing and none of us are infallible. There would be videos of me flipping people off in traffic, you know. Oh, I thought he was the kind guy. Nope, not at that moment. I was an asshole. Um, so talk to me about, you know, that that, that event. And then um, you obviously have one voice that was very um, vehement that that they were all in the wrong. Um, and then how that affected the the Canadian chapter. And then talk to me about the ripple effect of that positive coping mechanism then being taken away again? Yeah, I think, um, you know, and then of course want the want audiences to kind of, you know, watch, watch the film and really just experience the, 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 what's, what's so incredible about what we did was we were there for it. You know, when you're there for it, for the, for the, the, tw the twist in a story um, and you're not trying to manufacture it, you're not telling it, retrospectively, you're actually there the moment that, you know, uh, these firefighters that you'd been documenting for months, um, you know, the, the founding member of their club is, is on the front page of every newspaper in this province, um, posed next to um, members of, of, the, of the Hells Angels with, uh, who in, from the perspective of law enforcement are um, a criminal organization. And so the movie then, goes on this completely, I mean, I could have never predicted in a million years. I mean, I was sitting in a cafe and I picked up the newspaper as I do. And I'm looking on the front page and I'm thinking that what, those are the guys I'm employed to be filming right now. This is my, you know, and they're on the, and then I'm looking at the next newspaper from a completely different publication they're on the front page there. Um, and, uh, and, and so then I'm immediately upset because I think, have I just been taken for a ride? You know what I'm saying? Like, am I, this whole concept of peer support and wind therapy and brother and sisterhood and, and fighting for, you know, moving forward on the mental health conversation within the fire service, did it all mean nothing? Because, you know, I was just, you know, this was all just kind of some, some ploy or, you know, some, you know, this is actually just a, a story about, about guys who, who just wanted to get close to, to a big biker gang. Um, but I made a commitment to investigate probably further than anybody has done. And, uh, over, over another two years to then kind of look at how do you, how do we come out of a situation like that? Um, and, 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 in, and in looking at that, we witnessed the power of perception, the power of media, um, the power of stigma, and how that reaches, that can cost people their jobs. Um, that can that can get people suspended. That can um, tear families apart. Um, and in the case of this club, it really, I mean, put a stress on the club. A club that was growing at an exponential rate, uh, uh, that that nearly destroyed it completely. Um, and I think that's where the movie kind of takes a turn and it examines perception. Um, and, uh, and we looked at it from all sides. I brought in, and I was happy to bring in the perspective of law enforcement, specific law enforcement who deal within this specific, like, like biker gang 
you know, police, like not just, you know, somebody in law enforcement who has no, you know, knowledge of this, this case or whatever. We brought in people who are immediately involved. Um, and uh, because I really wanted to, uh, to show the audience that I was going to look at this from all sides, something that I don't think the, you know, I don't think publications did. Um, uh, I think they pigeonholed themselves and, but we were going to be the voice of truth and objectivity and, and let the audience decide. So that's kind of what you, you know, you see in the back half is what, you know, what happens when, you know, when, when a firefighter is, is on the front page posing next to an outlaw biker gang and, uh, and what are the repercussions of that and what is just, that's what the movie really examines in, in the back half. And, and it, I, I tell you, that was not the movie I was expecting to make, but it, it, uh, it, it, it definitely made for, for something really, really quite, uh, quite interesting. Yeah, well, again, I mean, Eric has featured and, you know, some of the, the other guys are reporting how well he was doing when he was writing. And then again, a kind of fall from grace after that was taken away. You know, he was obviously, you know, one of the people at the center of that. And, you know, his department had acted as well because of his participation with that organization. And what was interesting to me was you have this law enforcement officer who was a firefighter prior, um, who, you know, has a very hard stance on this. And it kind of reminds me of a couple of the law enforcement guests I've had on when I talk about decriminalization of drugs. They're so embedded in the idea that they are soldiers in the war on drugs that they're unable to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and not faulting them at all. Like some people are able to, some people aren't. But when you are so groomed to think a certain way, think a certain group is always going to be a criminal you're right probably you know 90 whatever percent of the time but it's it's hard then to be able to take that objective look so i think it was good that you had him in there to be that other voice to be that you know and and you know and you can't like i said you can't fault him i had jay dobbins on who was the the um atf agent that went undercover with the hell's angels and uh you know ironically it was his own agency that really <laughs> caused the most problems in the end by not supporting him but but yeah so if if that's all you've known it's understandable but doesn't mean it makes it right. Yeah, I think, and that's, and that's where it goes back to what I kind of said near the beginning of the interview, where what, what really is my job here? You know, what I really looked at, and I thought, okay, what am I, I'm, what am I trying to communicate? And, and I think I was just, when I saw the article written about the incident and I saw kind of, and I felt like it was quite surface level and I thought it was quite uh, kind of tabloid-esque. Um, I thought nobody's asking the right questions. I have to be the one to ask the right questions. And I'm not here to try to find a certain, I wasn't, I'll tell you in it, I really, and I spoke to our executive about this at the time. I said, um, I'm not here to save anybody. You know what I'm doing? I'm not here to save anybody. I'm not here to save the reputation of the Florian's Knights. I'm going to, um, I'm going to dig and I'm going to continue on this path. Um, and what I find is what I find. And I, and I always say this, and I think people understand that when they hire me, where my allegiance is not to my subjects, it's not to the production company, it's not to the network, it's not to, I mean, I'll, I'll burn the movie if you want me, <laughs> you know, if you're asking me to do something that, I'm, you know, that, that is in complete contrast to the truth, then, you know, that's it. And so I got such a, a great amount of trust from the production company to go and investigate this, to see if what was there. Um, and, and I think the movie is is quite a um a an, a very honest portrayal of the event of the falling out of the event i don't think it makes anybody to be 
completely, you know, uh, you know, good and bad isn't so clear. You know what I'm saying? I, I, you know, there, there is gray area. There are people that are need to take responsibility for certain actions, but it allowed us to kind of examine, you know, what happens when you take away the motorcycle, you know, is the world a better place for these guys? Are the streets cleaner? Um, what, what, what really has been done here? Um, and did you go after the right people? You know, that, that's kind of the, 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 the big question that, that I seek to answer in the film. Um, and then I let the audience decide at the end. Well, like I said, I think it was an incredible, you know, lens that we were given by following the story. Uh, I think it was beautifully shot, the music, I mean, everything was, he did such an amazing job. So where, when people listening, where can they watch the film? And then when can they see Freedom Besieged as well? Because that's something I'm very excited to watch too. Yeah, so uh, Florian's Nights right now is, um, it did a 45 city theatrical run across North America um, that began in September um, near the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, and, uh, and so now it, it's, it's, out of, it's out of theaters. We're actually looking at doing a UK theatrical run. Um, uh, but in North America, it's available video on demand um, pretty much everywhere in, in Canada, you know, the best place to watch it is on Apple TV. And in the United States, the best place to watch it is on Amazon prime. Um, and you can go and rent and purchase the film and it's available there. So, so it's great. People get to can now watch it at home. And I know that's been, um, I think there are some first responders who are going through this, who are, ha you know, going through the journey of, of, of post-traumatic stress injury and, and post-traumatic, uh, and PTSD, um, sometimes they just want to watch it at home with their, with their spouse. You know, they don't want to be in a theater with everybody else. They want to be, they want to have that privacy to go through this, what is a very, um, a visceral experience for somebody who does this job. And so it's been, it's been great to see, uh, to have folks able to watch the film at home. And, uh, and, and we hope in the future that we'll, you know, we'll be announcing, um, you know, a, a, even a larger streaming deal. Um, that can even make the film, you know, much more widely available on an international scale. Um, so, but right now we're in North America and still working very hard to make sure this gets into every, um, every household here. So, because uh, I think it's necessary viewing, not just for first responders, but anybody who is, you know, has struggled with trauma, has somebody in their life who has dealt with trauma. I think it's a, even though it's from the lens of, of kind of an extreme job being, you know, firefighting, it has universal themes that can, that can be of, of use to, to anybody out there who, who is, who's going through something. Yeah. Well, I think as well, if you want a perspective of, you know, looking through a firefighter's eyes, I think it's an important one for civilians. I wrote a book just over a year ago now, and that was the, the theme as well. I mean, one was definitely, it was written for us, but if you read it as someone who wasn't a first responder, you got a very different insight than, you know, a lot of, as we said at the beginning, caricatures of what these professions do. Oh, absolutely. And just to answer the, the back end of your question there with, with Freedom Besieged, um, uh, my film on the youth identity within Greece during the crisis, uh, that, that film where we've been working very hard. We actually, you know, funny, when we released the movie and it went to theaters in, in Canada, um, and then we had been planning a great, a wonderful theatrical release in the United States and in Greece. And then the pandemic hit, it put a lot of, um, a lot of obviously completely paused that plan. Um, 
I didn't have the same level of resources that I have with Florian's Nights. I could push Florian's out there even during a pandemic, which we were so blessed to do so. But with Freedom to Siege, I had to shelve it. But now it's going to be coming back out digitally here um, in March. And so I'm, I'm ex- I mean, I made that film when I was, you know, 23 years old. I mean, 2016, 17, 18, we were making that. It's fascinating to me that um, I actually get to now essentially release that to the world, you know, all these years later. Um, and I've been equally fascinated to see that Freedom Besieged is still a very relevant narrative, even over a half decade later, um, which is, is fascinating in its own, in its own right. So, so those, um, that, those announcements will be coming uh, soon. Uh, but of course, Florian's Nights is available right now for anybody listening to, uh, to go ahead and check it out and, and it'll give you a, um, a very unique perspective and, and hopefully one that, uh, that kind of moves the needle on the mental health conversation at large. Absolutely. Well, like I said, I can't, I can't, you know, shout from the rooftops enough about how much people need to see it. Um, and I think you're right. I think the latest film, um, is, is more pertinent now than 10 years ago, to be honest. I mean, really, I think it mirrors so much that we're going through at the moment. So if people want to reach out to you personally or, or, you know, find anywhere online, where are the best places to, to kind of follow the film, social media, follow you on social media? Yeah, so um, I'm just at Panyanitsis, and you have to you have to Google to figure out how to spell my last name there. But um, I, I'm of course on on all on all social platforms, and and I love to to kind of pe- people should always feel you know free to reach out to me, and and I love to hear what people think of the work, and I and I respond personally to all those inquiries, and um, and then with Florian's Nights, it's at Florian's Nights Movie um, across all platforms. Um, and, and, and similar at Freedom Besieged uh, to, to follow that film as well. Um, and uh, I make a real point. I mean, when I started, uh, when I kind of began my career, I really, I thought I want to build a really good relationship with, with audiences that where it feels open and inviting and we can engage in conversation because my work is here to a- ask the right questions and then let's have that dialogue after the fact. And so I'm, I'm very open to, um, uh, with anybody who loves the work, who, who wants to critique the work, uh, I love engaging in those in those uh, conversations and debates because it it only makes me a better storyteller and uh, and it gives me a clear picture of uh, you know of what's going on out there as people interact with with the, with these films. And I definitely don't like being in an echo chamber. I love to be out there and and interacting with the real perspectives on the work. So um, so yeah, that's where people can can find me, and I look forward to hearing from folks. Beautiful. Well, Pan, I just want to say thank you. I mean, you know, I'm so glad that we were connected initially. Um, but, you know, once I actually got to see the film, um, and again, as you said, the, the, the twists and turns that it follows, the parallels of my own career and a lot of things that I talk about, and then some of your other work, you know, it, I was so excited to do this conversation. So I just want to thank you so much for being gem- so generous with your time today. Thanks a lot, James. I, you know, and very, very grateful for all that you do with, um, with the Behind the Shield podcast and, and definitely, um, you know, looking forward to tune into all the, all the great guests that I know you've got lined up in the future. So I, I appreciate being on. It, it was my honor to be here today.